This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, On the Media, Comedian Lee Camp, Radio Dispatch, and The Young Turks. And remember, don't trust anyone over 30. Oh, no, wait, I, I read that wrong. It says, don't trust anyone with over 30 subsidiaries. That's right. A liberal-leaning Democrat is waging a somewhat lonely but passionate fight against a mega-corporate merger. Sounds like the sort of thing you'd see talked about on the liberal-leaning cable channel MSNBC, right? Well, not this time. You see, the politician, Minnesota Senator Al Franken, is the leading congressional opponent of Comcast's $45 billion bid to take over Time Warner Cable. And Comcast is MSNBC's parent company. We noted previously how MSNBC mostly ignored announcement of the merger, with the only substantial exception being the two company CEOs enjoying a kind of victory lap on Morning Joe. Franken's tough questioning of company officials at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing got the attention of the New York Times, for instance, but so far only crickets at the cable channel you'd think might be sympathetic to the views of Franken and the dozens of public interest groups that have spoken out against the deal. CNN, on the other hand, has done much more on the story. They, as it happens, no longer have any corporate ties to Time Warner Cable. So maybe MSNBC doesn't need to tell viewers about the dangers of one mega corporation holding enormous power over cable, broadband, and programming when they're doing such a good job of showing them. Radio daylight, radio darkness. Radio daylight, radio darkness. Show me something new. Show me something new. Show me something new. Show me something new. There's a really interesting report out about, this was submitted to us on our Reddit subreddit, where you can uh, submit stories. That's reddit.com slash r slash the David Pakman Show. And it's an analysis of how accurate cable news coverage is when it comes to the topic of climate change. And it's no secret that we see a lot of far from perfect coverage. I talk about the false balance we often see, where even though there is a 97% to 3% scientific consensus when it comes to climate change. On cable news, you'll often see it presented as a big controversy with one talking head saying, yes, human activities on Earth are having an impact, and another talking head saying, no, human activities are not having an impact, incorrectly suggesting that there is some kind of 50-50 balance. Well, there's a study that's been done by the Union of Concerned Scientists, which analyzed how accurately the big three cable news networks, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, are when it comes to covering climate uh, climate science, it's not good. The study found that in 2013, MSNBC did have the highest accuracy rate in its coverage of climate change. They were right 92% of the time. CNN was second, accurate 70% of the time. And listen to this, Fox News was third, only accurately presenting the issue of climate change and climate science 28% of the time. How pathetic. The inaccuracies identified in the report typically stemmed from dismissing or doubting science facts or 
from overstating or understating current science. UCS analyzed almost 600 different clips of cable news coverage from 2013, all looking for references to either climate change or global warming. Then they evaluated all of the statements made against those which are backed by actual science. Remember, only two-thirds of Americans even recognize that climate change is a real thing, and less than half of, of uh, Americans believe that it is caused by human-related activities, according to the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication. So MSNBC, 92% accurate, CNN, 70%, Fox News, 28% accurate, 72% misleading. Um, Fox... I don't, I don't really know what to say about this. We can, the, the study also details, and you can read about it, uh, where the networks go wrong. So MSNBC, in spite of being uh, the most accurate at 92%, they really don't host debates about established science. And, uh, they, they, um, also are sometimes not too forthcoming when it comes to identifying what is conjecture not based in science and what is science. Fox News, on the other end of the spectrum, often has uh, co-hosts and hosts of programs directly parroting stuff that is absolutely not based in science. They disproportionately play up the points of view from the anti-science right, etc., etc. However, this is the most incredible part. The report actually shows an improvement for Fox News. If you go back to 2012 and look at the exact same report, Fox News's coverage was only 7% accurate. So should we be praising Fox News that they experienced a 400% increase in the accuracy of their climate change reporting? Uh, I don't know. We probably shouldn't. We probably should be more focused on the fact that only 28% of the reporting is accurate. And uh, I, I don't even know what I can add. I mean, the numbers really do speak for themselves. The biggest concern we know, right, as consumers of alternative media and as um, uh, people with a critical eye for, for corporate media, we kind of understand what's going on on Fox News and we understand the influence of money and the issues that help to bring in viewers and, and fundraise for the right. We understand all that, but the average news consumer probably doesn't really pay attention to stuff like that. And that's really the concern when you flip by Fox News and you see the false balance and you see the inaccurate presentations of climate, climate science. Uh, that's really the problem and that's what's most concerning. These days, the House Republicans actually give John Boehner a harder time than they give me. Uh, which means orange really is the new black. That was Barack Obama on Saturday, ten minutes into his monologue ridiculing the permatan of his political nemesis. It was an almost perfect joke, just like the White House Correspondents' Dinner itself. 
almost everything you need to know about the correspondence dinner is that there is a red carpet. That hollering is the working press, cordoned behind retractable belt barriers, here vying for the attention of, I swear to God, Greta Van Susteren. Oh, uh, yeah, I was penned in there, too. You know, journalizing, just like my colleagues. Hi, I'm Bob Garfield from On the Media. What, what story are you chasing tonight? Oh, we're just talking to celebs, seeing why they're here, just chatting. Are you a news organization? I'm with USA Today. What do you hear after today? Fun moments on the red carpet, trying to mix the fun of the politicians with the crazy of the celebrities. <laughs> Who are you? I'm with ABC. On the Media is hosting a media ethics colloquy at 7 tonight. You guys interested? Um, well, right now, I'm zipping back. I'm only here for part-time. I'm handing this off. So. <laughs> More on that media ethics thing in a minute. But I will say that the red carpet delivered these folks their stars. CNN Suzanne Malveaux chatted up scandals. Scott Foley. It is so incredible because nobody thought that the White House administration could be that scandalous or that sexy. Well, that's scandalous or sexy. Thank you. Um, Someone snagged one of the Duck Dynasty guys. I think everybody just looked around. I'm, I was staring at everybody around me. And check out Uzo Adubo of Orange is the New Black. Is there anyone here that you're trying to like casually stand next to and talk to? I'm trying to casually stand next to Kevin Hart. I also would like to very casually and or aggressively be next to Wolf Blitzer from CNN. I know, right? You look lovely as always, Wolf. Who are you wearing? Armani. Well done. What's the uh, What story are you chasing tonight? I'm not chasing anything. We're here to have fun. Correct. CNN hosted New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Texas Governor Rick Perry, a White House special assistant, and a couple of members of Congress. CBS had HUD Secretary Sean Donovan. The Washington Post had Transportation's Anthony Fox. Yahoo News had Attorney General Eric Holder. ABC had Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, whose department routinely ignores press questions about detaining and abusing American citizens at the border and lethal force against unarmed suspects. But Johnson and the others sat there in their tuxedos, offering nothing more to their news organization hosts than the basket of dinner rolls, in no jeopardy whatsoever of journalism breaking out. In the week leading up to the event, I asked Steve Tama, president of the Correspondents Association, about the propriety of cozying up to the very officials his membership is supposed to be watchdogging. Every reporter in this town who covers a beat. We all take people out to lunch or dinner, either because we're already talking to them every day or we're hoping they'll return our calls and talk every day. And I just don't have a problem with it. It's up to every journalist what they do with their source. We're just not going to get involved in that relationship. Abusive though it may be. As we heard earlier in this hour, this is an administration that has systematically stiffed the press corps for six years. Access is so bad, the press usually can't even take photos at photo ops. Saturday's dinner, putting reporters face-to-face -face with Obama for five solid hours, was by far their longest presidential encounter of the year. Yet, of course, not one question about Ukraine immigration, the Keystone XL pipeline, the budget, the NSA, the climate, the Mideast peace process, or anything else. 
As for everyday opportunities to see the president, Tom assured me that objections of the Correspondents Association and its allies have been duly registered at the White House. And we believe we have made some progress, particularly for the cameras, for photojournalists. We think that we're getting them in more often than we used to. A lot of progress? Some progress. Significant progress? We'll get to significant progress. In the Hilton Grand Ballroom, the sound of shoulders rubbing. Up on the second floor was the sound of crickets chirping. As dinner convened downstairs, On the Media did indeed host an ethics colloquy that we named Red Carpets and Red Flags, featuring American University journalism professor Patricia Afterheide, Jeffrey Goldberg of Bloomberg News, my fixer Mark Leibovich of the New York Times Magazine, and me. Refreshments were served to us because nobody else showed up. See, many people are going to come. Where did you put the poster? This thing's been a complete flop. I mean, it's looked a little bit demoralizing. I think we can call it. I just, it's 725. It's been great, guys. Yeah, you, um, want to take some donuts with you? I actually took them back with me, back beyond the beltway where this expedition started. Although, truth be told, after seeing the workings of media and official Washington firsthand, I'd pretty much lost my appetite. watch any of the uh, White House correspondence there? If we can go on this distraction, this tangent for a second. Sure, I did. What'd you think? Um, it's a very awkward event. It, yeah. It, it's very weird. Um, yeah. Uh, I can see why people like Chris Christie, like the no, like I could see why the every everyday person likes, even to this day. Because he's like Jackie Gleason? The dude's, like, the dude's got a good way to just... I mean, I'm sure he he's saying this to himself as he's laughing at his the jokes about his weight and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, people will like you if you laugh at yourself because he's the only one who really does that. See, what was weird? Was, but uh, but oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just I just thinking of that because I agree with you. But then a couple weeks ago, remember that video that was going around with Joey Behar? And yes. She was roasting him, and he literally stood up and like interrupted her set. So. I don't know. Like he's I think, weird. I don't know wonder which way he's going there. Maybe, maybe he's thinking, you know, where am I and what's the appropriate behavior for that? Like, this is Jersey, and this old broad's insulted me. That's pretty much I'm it. Get up! I'm in Jersey. The people of Jersey will love if I attack her. I'm in D.C. Some gay kid from the E Network. All right, I'm fat. I'm fat. Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 ha. I hate you. Ha 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 ha! I hate you. Um. Yeah, I I was I had I was thinking like 
Because cause we, you know, I know some people who go to the White House Correspondents League, and obviously we talk about that. And I think, like, part of the, obviously part of the vibe of this show is that, like, we would not even, I don't even, like, we wouldn't even necessarily go if we got the invites, right? Like, maybe I would go. Well, no, I mean, we, <laughs> we would, but there's you'd hear, a way. You hear me in the back? You hear me in the back when Obama goes on my next joke. Here we go. Uh, drones. I go, boom. <laughs> that really bothers me when he jokes about drones. It really, because so you know I what? Didn't, I didn't you know, hear because he thought he had a, because he made a drone joke two years ago. Yes, three. and that, that, that bothers me. That was the most too. tasteless yes. joke I've heard. Yes. He, the joke was, is he was talking, because he always, you know, he always does stuff about being like a beleaguered dad, whatever. And the joke was, you know, like, uh, my daughters are going to be dating soon. And, uh, you know, just a word of warning to, uh, to boys coming over, predator drones. Yeah. I mean, that was just, that was listen, like kind if, of if stunningly a, tasteless. If joke. a comedian wants to make a joke about drones, well, what they should do is well, make. Well, Mikhail made the joke about yeah, drones. Yeah, th- that was, I mean, that's, no, he, I think pretty sure Obama said something no, 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 about it. No, no, no. I mean, I don't, oh, maybe he did. I don't remember Obama making a joke this year, but Mikhail made a joke about drones, which the joke was, he was saying, in America, we worry about plot spoilers on Twitter. In other countries, you say, oh, my God, don't tell me you got killed by the drone strike in the village. Don't spoil it for me. Which, as a joke, that construction didn't work because he made saying, it to yes. flip. But he was trying to put it on the table in a little bit of a critical way. I don't think it worked, but I think he was trying. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Usually, usually the comedians they get, I feel like, at least in recent years, have a little bit more of a, a political uh, humor background. Yeah, what's his, is he? He's on Joe he's McHale. On the he e has Network. a sh- he has a show on uh, on E called The Soup, and he like talks about whatever's on TV or whatever. Right. And he also is on Community. Okay. Okay. I haven't seen Community, but obviously I know that's a very popular show. Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't know. I but but I was really thinking this time. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's just there was this report in the Hollywood Reporter that Sam didn't get to. So I'll just mention it because we won't get to it otherwise. But it was like basically saying that, you know, because the thing has gotten bigger because Hollywood stars have been going to it more so over the last several years. And now there's the whole hook in with, you know, with with TV shows and House of Cards and Veep and all that. And uh and basically, um, the uh, it, but stars are not going as much as they used to because they complain that the people at the correspondence dinner are like obnoxious and they're they're getting basically pawed at too much. Oh yeah, like actual. And there's just something about that room. I can picture that. I so I mean that's but that's what made the report funny was that there was no part of me that said no that has to be exaggerated. I was. Just, Absolutely. Well, because people I'm totally who, sure the majority of people who go to that thing are hacks, and right. they, they are they're pawing at the opportunity to be cool or relevant, you know, because they don't. These aren't the journalists who you know uh, speak truth to power. They're not the ones who you know. Tr- these are people who who pretty much toe the line for the I most part. I don't even part. know. I mean, I mean, there's all that, but there's also just like just even the culture that like, where did they get the idea of like that being cool to begin with i mean it's a whole other well, i don't just, even think they they worry about looking cool to that celebrity at that moment they want the photo no, with no, the celebrity no, I understand. so I they meant, can post I it in just like cool. the whole event is so it's like 
you can tell a lot about. Oh, well, don't they call it like nerd prom or something? Well, I'm not even going to go there. Yeah. I, I can't, I will not dignify well. that term. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you can tell a lot about a place by how people decompress. And it is interesting to watch it because it is their version of decompressing. But wow, that's a fucking weird way to decompress. That's, that's all I'll say. I mean, wow. Like, I want to go have some stuffy dinner in a cold ballroom. And with the exception, the only part that's genuinely interesting is, is the president funny? President Obama's actually really funny. That, that is interesting. Like, he's good at doing stand-up. For but, a president, he's pretty funny. Uh, well, Let's yeah. put it in the you know, that, That's But that goes without saying. Well, you know, I'll, here's what I would say. For a president, he's funny. And he's actually generally, like, he's not a comedian, but he's a funny guy. So it's even more than, like... He's a pretty funny person. But at any rate, I don't know. It's just just bizarre. So My get, favorite thing about the whole yeah. night was CNN after everyone's uh, – after each after, – They were stone-faced. After Obama, after Joe McHale, they had to critique every single comedy uh, bit. And, you know, they had to you – know, Don Lemon had to give his opinion on whether he thought something was – Oh, I thought it was really funny. What about what did you about you, Wolf? What did you think? Like it was so bizarre. And they had Ben Stein on to uh, – to, to, and Ben Stein was, you know – it's, it's the year 2014, and why is Ben Stein critiquing anything at this point? I mean, the only you... funny thing about Ben Stein is that he exists. Yes, I mean, it's like he I, was I like, don't, yeah. I don't know, I didn't quite get what Joel McHale was saying for the most part. I didn't find it very funny. It was just bizarre. So like, what about old numbers where you would, you know, as an example, steal money from a blind homeless man, or something like that, or calling economics jewish engineering those were the jokes that i really enjoyed <laughs> back in my day when i was writing speeches for richard nixon i mean come on who did, what like ben cnn having ben stein on to comment on the white house correspondence dinner is way more embarrassing than malaysia coverage yes that is just, no that is no ridiculous. i disagree but okay i well i'll take that to the mat you fix your nose just to compensate As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Just a moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. We talk about how our system of a capitalist democracy allows for such great individualism, right, and freedom. Yet here we are. Most of us wear the same stupid clothes, follow the same acceptable path with our lives, occupy our minds with the same shitty TV, and water everything down to a brownish-green paste of mediocrity that looks like rotten mashed peas with a Taylor Swift selfie on top and can be easily digested by a faceless mob of identical-looking quote-unquote individuals. 
We're actually the victims of thought police. They stole our thoughts by forcing them all inside an acceptable pre-planned box. They then gift-wrapped it with a bow on top and told us it would make us popular. It would make sure we weren't outcasts. It would ensure our success. But if you take off the bow and look inside, it's just a dump. They took a dump in a box. Here in the age of corporation, people are now taking on the personality of the corporation. Managers administer things and people and then relate to those people as if they were things. It's all numbers on a spreadsheet now. Ironically, the more we rave about freedom and individuality, the more we take on the bland prefab soul of the corporation. We need an education system that from our earliest days teaches children how to fight against mass manipulation instead of adhere to it, how not to be sheep, how not to follow along blindly. In fact, I bet sheep are pretty offended by that comparison. Seriously, the sheep must be thinking to themselves, fuck you, man, comparing us to humans who fall in line and never question anything? First of all, we have a physical motherfucking fence holding us in, all right? What's your excuse? Oh, I have to work at this job so that I can afford the house I never see and the pool I never swim in and the vacation from the job. That's right, I work my ass off to pay for the escape from working my ass off. So that's the first way we sheep aren't like you, alright? And secondly, we fall in line because there's an asshole human standing there with a big stick and an angry dog and a hungry look on his face, alright? And I know for a fact that he eats lamb chops every Thursday. So we fall in line because you might eat us. You fall in line because a commercial with a pretty actress told you it's a good idea. The politician guy had a TV spot with an American flag flapping and an SUV. So you figure he probably has your interest at heart. So make all the fun of us sheep you want. But we have never done anything because a piece of fabric was blowing in the wind. Alright? We do things because you guys have fucking bolt guns. Last reason I'm offended by this analogy... We smell better. Be honest with yourself. We smell better. All I'm saying is at least sheep have a fence to point to. We humans are imprisoned inside this consumerist nightmare, this irritable cubicle syndrome of a life with only manipulation holding us in place. Our own minds are fenced in by tactics that Edward Bernays came up with 80 years ago, and we still haven't found a way around them. And I realize that this episode had an impressively long impersonation of a sheep without any effort to give the character the feel of a sheep, not a single man or whatever the fuck, but that's because I went to the Mark Wall School of Acting, where I just act like myself and then it's the audience's job to decide what I am. If they want me to be something else, that's, that's their job. That's been your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. If you're offended that I made fun of Mark Wahlberg, good. That's called an opinion. You should have a lot of those. My friend Lee Camp, who we just heard from, contacted me a few weeks ago and asked if I would help promote his new comedy special. He was a comedian. He does specials and albums, that sort of thing. And it's taken me so long to get around to helping promote it that I now have two things to promote because he's been very busy recently. So 
his comedy special is available only on his website because he's giving it away for free. You know, he recommends donating five bucks if you want. You don't have to, uh, but one fifth of every donation that's made to get the comedy special is being donated to Doctors Without Borders. So you can't really beat that. And then the other exciting news is that just last night, his weekly television show started on RT. It's called Redacted Tonight. So if you, if you like what you just heard, or maybe you've heard him before and you know you like him, I would definitely recommend checking out both his comedy special available on his website, and then, of course, he's linked to his new TV show, which, if you don't have RT, you can get online anyways. So both of those things, good to check out. And But if you don't like the clip you just heard of him, or if you're offended by the things he says, or how he says them, or if you think that by including him in the show, I'm bringing down the level of discourse and actually hurting the progressive cause, because people like him don't deserve to be part of a civilized conversation about important issues, then just don't go watch his other shows, because you're probably not going to like them. There was an article in The Guardian by a writer named Emily Bell who kind of brought attention to the whiteness and maleness of a lot of the heads of these new media ventures. And not only, like, the head heads of the new media ventures, but, like, also the people they're hiring. Uh-huh. I think each of the people are certainly qualified, smart. Of course, like, they want to do a thing. They absolutely should, like, right on. Right, and it's not like somebody giving David Brooks a new thing, where you're like, right. why? why, like, what, he's not good at anything. Like, they do create value, and value, I mean, in a way that, like, if you read them, you will learn specific things. Right, right, right. Yeah, and they're young, and it makes sense that they're like, we want to do something a little bit different. It's not like a, like a misandry thing, where it's just like, no white man should ever have any platform. Although... You know, I'll hear those arguments. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, we won't say that those don't have any place. <laughs> In the hiring practices at these new media places, this Guardian piece was like, you know, well, what makes it new media if you're just replicating the hiring practices of yeah. old media, which is hire a bunch of other white guys? Because that's who you know, and that's like the clubhouse right, deal. Right, who already have access to a lot of platforms. Yeah. What is new about that? It's What's new about it is its oldness. <laughs> It's it's older than anything else, which makes it new. Right. And so in this, uh, this New York Magazine interview with Nate Silver, the interviewer, asks him specifically about that Guardian piece. Oh, and also one other thing that happened was in the Guardian piece, the author said less than 30% of the staff are women. And it was actually like 32% of the staff were women. And Nate Silver was like, actually, it's 32%. Not that accuracy is important. Yeah, not that journalists need better math skills. Yeah, right. Which was like way to be a dick, yeah, dude. Right. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing about that response is redeeming. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's not less than 30, it's 32. So that was already like a little bit like, mm, that's how you're going to react to that kind of criticism. But then he made it clear in this interview that he was actually quite frustrated with that criticism from The Guardian. Uh, perhaps that frustration uh, was the subtext of that snarky 32%. Mm-hmm. And it, he, he says, I found that piece really 
really frustrating. And one of the reallys is spelled with like four or five A's. <laughs> so really, I don't know whether that, I wonder if this was like an in-person interview or a text interview. Like I wonder to what extent there's journalistic interpretation of how he said the word really. Um, but he found it really, really frustrating. And the reason why is very illustrative of a much larger problem. This really, in this conversation, it's really not even to single out Nate Silver or, or Ezra Klein or uh, Iglesias or anything. I think it's just when I read this, I was like, oh, my God, this is everything. Nate Silver, who, again, was writing at the New York Times before, has been on a bunch of television. I mean, he is a, he is a famous, famous oh, yeah. pundit. He said he had used the phrase clubhouse chemistry, which Emily Bell had kind of uh, critiqued. He said it's an allusion to baseball. Uh, but the idea that we're all bro people just couldn't be more off. We're a bunch of weird nerds. We're outsiders, basically. And we have people who are gay, people from different backgrounds. Um, but uh, the part that, that I want to focus on is we're a bunch of weird nerds. We're outsiders, basically. Okay. So this is a thing that I've observed a lot in my own life. Men, white men, maybe, mostly, uh, maybe not exclusively, if they are resistant to being told that, you know, they should check their privilege, that they have benefited from their whiteness or their maleness, that the reason that white men dominate everything isn't necessarily because white men are better at everything. Which I don't find persuasive, <laughs> but do, do go on. <laughs> A lot of people uh, in that position will say, no way, I don't have privilege. I got made fun of when I was a kid. I was a nerd. You know, I was lonely. I didn't have anybody to sit with. Or I was sitting at the nerd's table. I wasn't cool. No girls wanted to sleep with me. Girls didn't like Which me. is a big part of it. These guys who are like, no, I was oppressed as a kid because I wasn't cool. So don't tell me what oppression is. I, I know what it's like to, to feel like an outsider. Right. Well, if you were uh, a nerd as a kid, if you were socially ostracized, if you were bullied, I absolutely feel for you. Get right on board with that. A lot of us were. In fact, I'm going to go as far as to say that as adults, nobody is proud of having been cool and when they were young. Nobody I know was cool when they were young. It's pretty rare, yeah. You know, and certainly some. I mean, there were cool kids when they were young. I don't know what they grow up into, yeah. but like, like nobody in the world of like wonkery writing journalism, even. I don't think any of those guys were like, yeah, I was really popular and cool when I was young. I was awesome starting at kindergarten. <laughs> I only got more awesome. I mean, Matthew. McConaughey says that. Yeah, right. He uh, <laughs> he is a guy. Yeah, maybe with actors or specifically Matthew McConaughey, you can. Have, yeah. Oh, I've always been cool. But like, and I'm only getting better. It's not. I just like the idea that like, oh, oh, Nate Silver, you had a hard time as a kid. Yeah. Nobody else did. You're right. You are an outsider. Fucking everybody had a hard time as a kid, in different ways. But this idea that because you were an outsider as a kid. Because you were a nerd, even not not you weren't an outsider. I mean, I don't know about Nate Silver, but like I feel like there's a different level. There, you can feel like an outsider because you're a nerd. You can also feel like an outsider maybe in a different way if you're like poor and you can't go on trips. If you're gay, if you're the only black kid in a school of white kids, there's all sorts of ways you can feel like an outsider that are also related to like structural power that continues to influence your life as you get older. Being a young nerd and then growing up to be like a famous <laughs> writer, a famous, uh, you know, pundit person, 
you know, I'm sorry that you felt like an outsider as a kid, but that really has absolutely no bearing on whether you should hire more women, right? Like, it just doesn't. Uh, well, women don't feel like outsiders. Right. Well, well women can't be nerds. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's no representations of women in nerd things, so therefore there must not be women nerds. And and this is, so this is, I actually mentioned in the piece that I wrote at the Toast about my own experience feeling um, like an outsider growing up due to, like, my gender expression, I said something in the piece about, like, you know, all these experiences I've had talking to adult men um, who identify as, you know, nerds and who talk about, like, how lonely or alienated they felt when they were young and because they liked comic books, you know, or they liked um, Star Wars or Star Trek or what have you. And I, you know, of course, I like I, I like hearing those stories. I, I believe them, like of course. Um, but it, what surprises me is like, wow, like a ton, like millions of of people like comic books, millions uh-huh. and millions. I mean, comic books like are for little boys, <laughs> yeah. Like, and yet expectations of like masculinity are so strong that even if you're a little boy who likes comic books, which is like theoretically like what little boys like something little boys like are supposed to do, that, that a lot of those little boys still felt like they were failing at masculinity if they weren't also like football players, if they weren't strong, if they weren't attractive traditionally or whatever it was. You know, and I, I'm and in no way diminishing those boys' pain. I'm actually amazed by it and think like, you know, like I said in my piece, like, well, if, if if even those boys felt like this pressure about expressing masculinity, then certainly, you know, boys who maybe were, um, you know, were gender nonconforming or trans or girls who were, you know, ha- that that ha- who had maybe more unique, less common cultural or gen- whatever expressions that this is how powerful expectations of masculinity and femininity are. But there was a comment on my piece that I thought was so interesting and important that said like. The problem with that experience of, of, you know, young nerdy boys feeling alienated, which is very real and very common, is that there's enough of those guys who have grown into men who, you know, do have platforms, whether it be as filmmakers, whether it be as comic book writers, right, whether it be as comedians. Or like advertising executives. Certainly. Like quote-unquote creatives in business, Certainly, that whole thing. Now that experience of, you know, being a nerd, there's tons of representations of that, and there's a lot of representations of that uh, kind of identity being really, really glorified and of those guys being made into heroes. Think, like, John Cusack movies. You know, and he wasn't a super and, nerd. But, and, like, Judd Apatow movies And also. Judd Apatow movies, right. And not even super, super nerds, but guys who feel like they're not... The hottest guy in school, uh, who are kind of smart and kind of funny, but girls don't get them. And then in a lot of those. And especially like really hot girls don't get them. <laughs> right, right, right. Specifically hot girls who they want to get them, don't get them. And in a lot of those cultural representations, the, those guys are heroes and the girls who don't get them are enemies, are terrible. Maybe in the end they end up getting that girl. And then a girl who's hot in a different way does get them. Right. Luckily. <laughs> right. But who's still usually hot in completely, yeah. t- you know, traditional, ex- expected, kind of standard. Um, yeah, maybe like brunette instead of blonde. Right. Or ha- glasses, you can take them off. Yeah. Um, so the commenter was saying, you know, it's actually... That pendulum has swung so far to the other side that, like, that type of man is so worshipped. So they actually have, like, kind of a lot of cultural power, that idea of that kind of man. But those guys still identify as victims and they still feel Uh oppressed. So you have this, like, really negative situation where, like, a perfect storm where a, a guy 
actually does have a decent amount of, of power and privilege, but still internally feels like they're the most oppressed person on earth. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content, including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories and more of my personal musings thanks so much for your support washington dc is a dateline and it is an industry perhaps more than any other city the capital is a place where the marketplace of ideas has been overtaken by the just plain marketplace even political gridlock is good for business. Nothing gets done in Washington, Bob. My fixer and spirit guide, Mark Leibovich. The only thing that gets done here is that people get rich. It is a city in which we have not so much Democrats and Republicans, but, but millionaires. All Leibovich sees is an orgy of self-dealing, a culture perpetuated by, exploited by, and occasionally indulged in by the media. For instance, there is the symbiotic relationship between cable news channels and political operatives who equally benefit when partisans are anointed on-air wise men. MSNBC cohabits with Al Sharpton and ex-presidential press secretary Robert Gibbs. Fox has punditized Democratic influence peddler Lanny Davis and GOP sorcerer Carl Rove. I can't think of a single significant promise or pledge made about the Affordable Care Act that has been kept by this administration. You talk Money about also Russia. fattens the political economy whenever the press pumps up its own audience by playing and replaying campaign smears. Ironically, while underreporting, the money trail leading to the smearers. Fearful the ads questioning the senator's war record are having an impact, the Kerry campaign has responded with a new TV ad of its own to be broadcast in three battleground states. And if the press and the political class are really adversaries, what are we to make of events like the White House Correspondents' Dinner and its endless associated party crawl? Media organizations spending fortunes to host the crowd they're supposed to be scrutinizing. It all brings to mind Milo Minderbinder in Catch-22. It's all for the syndicate, and everyone has a share. I'm not speaking of graft exactly, certainly not the Jack Abramoff bribing congressman sort. It's more like a mentality, a buy-in to the trappings of ambition when public service and the coverage thereof becomes an industry. To better understand those impulses, I paid a call on one of the most prominent deal-makers, a man who monetizes Washington-born media-fueled celebrity like no other. I represent 300 and some television news correspondents, producers, anchors with their employment agreements. Lawyer Bob Barnett of the firm Williams & Connolly, situated literally between Capitol Hill and K Street. 
The man has more clients than I have Facebook friends. I also help a lot of people who leave government from the Senate, from the House, from the Cabinet, from the White House, shape their private sector duties. That's why you've been described as a doorman to the revolving door. What I'm basically doing is helping them determine what their real goals are and helping them fit those goals with the opportunities that are either presented to them or that I can help them seek. There are, of course, laws and ethics regulations governing the cashing-in process, and Barnett makes sure his clients don't run afoul of them. But he is not unaware of unseemliness. It is, in fact, on precisely such grounds that he declines to mention his mega-famous clients out loud, because... One simply wouldn't. So, as I stand at his office bookcase, he silently points to one Barnett-represented volume after another, permitting me to narrate. Uh, Bill Clinton, Bob Woodward, Sarah Palin, Elizabeth Warren, Ben Bradley, Hillary Clinton, James Baker, David Gergen, Dick Cheney, Charles Krauthammer, Alan Greenspan. My goodness gracious... Catherine Graham, Edward M. Kennedy, George W. Bush, Madeleine Albright, The Reagan Diaries, Tim Russert. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a pretty good client roster. And yes, those were major media figures stacked jacket to jacket with senior government officials. Was a time that we in the media were kind of ink-stained wretches in rumpled suits, duly and unglamorously reporting the doings of government and politics. And now some number of us are, are, are stars ourselves. We are players. We are bold-faced names. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? They become recognizable. They become controversial. They become the subject of attention. Nothing they can do about uh, being well-known from the work they do in their day job, from writing books, from appearing as talking heads or whatever. But the best of them try to maintain a sense of dispassionate objectivity. Some do it better than others. So that's one way for a journalist to tap into the Washington, D.C. economy. Another way is to simply switch sides, and twas ever thus. Twenty years ago, Wall Street Journal reporter Jeffrey Birnbaum, author of The Lobbyists, was on C-SPAN talking about the people who trade public service for private opportunity. It's played out hundreds of times over the years. People who came to Washington to work on the Hill and to try to, you know, do good, and they ended up in, in many ways doing well. And by well, he means... Birnbaum understands the almightiness of the dollar. In another book, The Money Men, the real story of fundraising's influence on political power in America, he framed the problem most succinctly. Quote, we all know vaguely that something is wrong in Washington, especially with its money culture. Thing is, Birnbaum is no longer at the Wall Street Journal. He's at BGR Group which describes itself as a powerhouse in lobbying, public relations, and investment banking. Yes, like many Washington reporters before him, the man who spent a career explaining the influence-peddling trade has traded up. I moved from being a journalist to being an advocate, which I, I am uh, quite happily, and it's my job to help 
clients in the way that they would like to be helped to help them advocate their positions. Does your role as an advocate for clientele sometimes force you into a position that would have made you extremely queasy as a journalist because you have uh, personal or political issues with the client? It's my job to advocate uh, positions, and I don't take on clients whose positions, as you say, make, make me queasy. For the record, last year, BGR's clientele included insurance, gambling, and defense, plus the Republic of Kazakhstan, ruled iron-fistedly by President for Life Nursultan Nazarbayev. That made me wonder aloud about Birnbaum's threshold of queasiness. Have I walked into the dark side? <laughs> no, you haven't. Why haven't I? You're going to have to. Hold on, hold on one second. Here he's gestured for me to turn off my tape recorder, and so I did, whereupon he explained that Kazakhstan is no longer a client. But anyway, even though it's never had a free and fair election, it is evolving and also so loaded with oil, uranium, and other resources that even the Obama administration sucks up to it. Then back on went the recorder. I think that it's a misunderstanding of what people do in Washington. To the extent that a journalist, for example, is a fair broker of conveying information, and you consider that to be a public good, then, then it is a public good. But people have very different views about what is a public good. Evidently. But also different views about what just smells funny. And so I wanted to hear just one more voice to understand how all these blurred lines appear not just to the public, which already loathes both politicians and the press, but to the actual bad guys, the scavengers who themselves feed on the carrion of lost altruism. If you are a jackal, what do you think when the watchdog starts sniffing your hindquarters? If you're cozy and comfortable with a media star, uh, a media commentator, a media celebrity, it's likely the case that they're just not as effective as a journalist. Ladies and gentlemen, convicted felon, ex-jailbird, and born-again ethicist, Mr. Jack Abramoff. Out of social obligation and out of filial uh, approach to their new friends and their cocktail party uh, buddies, they're likely to forego the kind of hard journalistic approach that others will take. Not with everybody, but certainly with their buddies. This is the way things have evolved. Uh, you know, this is a business. As we spoke, we were days away from an event where precisely such fraternization would take place, in black tie no less, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. What message, I asked him, does that send? Well, if I were a journalist and I wanted to be taken seriously as a journalist and somebody who had the public's trust in mind, I think it's highly unlikely that I would ever don a tuxedo in Washington, D.C., Walk away, I make you think I 
So Harry Reid goes on uh, MSNBC to talk to Chuck Todd. And uh, Chuck Todd's going to ask him a couple of questions. Uh, one is about, um, you know, this gridlock that we see in Washington, D.C., and who's at fault. And Harry Reid says something that I've been dying for a Democratic politician to say, I don't know, at least for 10 years, but I think longer. Let's watch. Dr. Coburn himself has held up hundreds of things, hundreds of things, and the Republicans over here won't buck him. You don't believe Democrats play any role in this? It feels like a tit-for-tat game. But it, Filling it, the it, amendment it, tree it, here and all this stuff, and I don't mean to use this process words, but there is no, you have, you don't believe that you, well, you, you know, there's any <clears throat> tit-for-tat going on here? One of the problems that press has in day journalism is everything you do is a tit-for-tat. You won't call things the way they actually exist. The, what has happened here is the Republicans have stopped everything from happening. So you can give me the tit-for-tat all you want, but the fact is we want to legislate. Finally, somebody says to the press, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, this stuff is not even. That's all you ever do. You call it even. You practice uh, neutrality journalism, which on the surface might sound like, oh, shouldn't the press be uh, neutral? No, that is the worst form of journalism. Now, if it was practiced in sports, you'd laugh it out of the building. You know, last night the Lakers and the Heat played, and the Lakers say they won, and the Heat say they won. Uh, who won? I don't know. That's it. That's all I got for you. I'm a neutral journalist. To say that the Heat won would show an anti-Laker bias. It would be laughable, right, in sports. But in, re in politics, where it's much more important, that's exactly the kind of journalism they do. So that's a good example right there, the gridlock issue, right? So is there some tit for tat? Yes, there is. So Harry Reid won't allow some amendments of the Republicans. But he is responding to an overwhelming record number of filibusters, record-breaking obstructionism. And, and we've shown it on the program over and over. Uh, the number of filibusters hasn't just gone up by a little bit. It hasn't doubled. It has gone way more than any record that has ever been seen before. So Chuck Todd does what all the journalists do, unfortunately, in the mainstream press. Well, you did something slightly wrong, and they did something wrong, and I'm going to call it even. Because I don't want to be called liberal. I don't want to say, uh, I don't want people saying I'm biased. So I'm just going to throw up my hands, and I'm not going to tell the American people the truth as to what is actually going on. If you did on the issue of gridlock, you would say that it is clearly, overwhelmingly, the Republicans' fault. Now, is it the Republicans' fault on every issue? Of course not, right? And later I'll be criticizing Harry Reid on a different issue that he talked to Chuck Todd about. But on this one, He's absolutely right. But the press is cowed. They do neutrality. They don't do objectivity. Objectivity is different. You say, I watched the game, and I saw that the Heat actually beat the Lakers, and here's the score. That's not neutral, but it's objective. That's the kind of journalism you're supposed to do. If I was Harry Reid, I would have shown up with a chart of the number of filibusters the Republicans did. But if we had real journalists in the country, he wouldn't have had to show up with that chart, because Chuck Todd would have been talking about it from day one. And unfortunately, he hasn't been. So I'll give you one last example of this because it's my favorite example. Iraq war, whether you thought uh, we should invade Iraq, is could be considered a matter of opinion. So it's not the job of Chuck Dodd or any of the journalists to say, hey, you know what, we shouldn't invade Iraq. Now, I, I do opinion on this show. I do analysis on this show. So it is my job to say we shouldn't have invaded Iraq. And that's what we said on the show at the time. We were one of the very few shows that said that. Now, why did we say it? On the issues of weapons of mass destruction, it was um, not clear. Now, a lot of the press presented it as if it were clear. But I'm not asking the press to say there were no weapons of mass destruction because that was a tough 
tough issue. I wish they had presented that a lot more thoroughly and show the real evidence and show that it was actually in that rare case more of a 50-50 issue before the war when on the data that we had rather than what they seem to present which was uh, everybody believes that they have them right okay but I'm not even blaming him for that but look there was a fact in there that they just did not deliver effectively to the American people and that's exactly what's wrong with the mainstream media do you know that when we invaded Iraq 69 percent of Americans thought that Saddam Hussein was personally responsible for 9-11. Well, that's just wrong. That's false. That is not true. And it was the job of the American press to say, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot of talk about Iraq here and 9-11. And the Bush administration keeps using it in the same sentence. Let us be clear. Saddam Hussein in Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. But they didn't say that. Instead, they let the Bush administration make their point over and over and over again, and then they would say, well, there is overwhelming, you know, and they wouldn't say overwhelming evidence, but they say there's evidence that they were not involved in 9-11. On the other hand, Dick Cheney says that Mohammed Atta once went to Iraq or some nonsense that they had made up. Now, if you were to give the true estimation of that, it would have been 99 to 1 that they weren't involved. Now we know it's 100 to 0 that they were not involved, right? But they didn't give that sense. Instead, what wound up happening was... Seven out of ten people in America were misled because the American media will not do its job. They will not bring you the facts. Instead, as Harry Reid points out here, they will do tit for tat. And they'll say, well, Dick Cheney says this, and other people say that, and we're not going to tell you which side is true. We're just going to sit it out, and we're going to literally abdicate our responsibility. So is it time for a Democrat to point out that... uh, press is doing that it's way past time so uh, credit to harry reed for finally taking the fight to them something he should have done at least 12 years ago Yeah, this is uh, Ben from Jersey calling about your charter school episode. Um, as an admirer of uh, Diane Ravitch, I found her segment to be very eye-opening. Um, Ravitch correctly speaks at length about the role of hedge funds are playing in the movement. And I wanted just to make some of your listeners aware of an organization called Students for Education Reform. Um, SFER boasts uh, basically to have hundreds of chapters across the country. Uh, but at their source uh, is funding from Wall Street and various for-profit charter schools. Um, it's a very uh, uh, Koch Brothers-esque uh, tactic to dupe um, college students into believing the reform being offered is even reform at all. Um, so I just wanted to put it out there, and I know Diane has addressed this organization um, on her blog as well. And I also wanted to add uh, to uh, Sally for San Francisco's spot on the assessment of special needs students. Um, I'm a uh, school board member myself in New Jersey, and I'm very aware of the uh, the need to provide a free and public education to everyone. Um, if our school district has a student, let's say, with extreme behavioral issues, uh, they, may, they may need to be sent uh, to a specialty school um, hours away, or even in some cases uh, I've dealt with situations where they're out of state completely. Um, regardless of whether the student attended our schools or not, if he or she lives in a district, then we pay for the cost of educating that child. And there's no questions asked about that. 
I think the fear of charters cutting corners in these areas is a real one. Uh, like most privatized programs, whether it be schools or the service industry or security or even prisons, if there is a public good um, attached to the service provided that greatly affects the company's bottom line, then more often than not, they'll jettison that service and either uh, nothing improves or the problem just is thrown back um, on top of the, uh, the taxpayers. Um, you know, certainly education is not a business. Uh, school dis- uh, di- school districts uh, should be run like businesses because education is an investment, uh, not a tool for profit. Uh, thank you for all your hard work and really enjoy the podcast. A few episodes back, I ended a conversation that had been going on in the voicemails and comments section uh, about the idea that maybe we should consider legally recognizing relationships between more than just two people. You know, maybe the idea that a relationship between two people is sort of an arbitrary number. We know that there are plenty of people out in the world, not like a majority or anything close, you know, but there's a very small minority who would like to have a relationship with more than one person and have that legally recognized. And so maybe there are good arguments for allowing that. And, and you know, more maybe more importantly, maybe there aren't very many good arguments opposing that. So that had been going on for a little while. And I so I put an end to it eventually and said, this will be the end unless I hear something really interesting and, and new, like a totally different perspective. Then maybe I'll, I'll bring the conversation back. Well, I don't know if the conversation is coming back. I don't know if there are going to be any follow-ups. But something interesting was definitely said, and that's why this message is back on that topic. Hi, Jay. This is Tanya in Sassoon City, California. And I wanted to add just another element to the issue of the state-recognized like polygamous and polyamorous relationships. Um, as I see it, there's, there's two primary dimensions to the benefits of the state recognizing same-sex relationships, and, and one is the that social legitimacy, the respect, and the recognition that it brings to the relationship, and then that serves as a stepping stone, of course, to deinstitutionalizing that prima facie sexual orientation discrimination that we see in other laws. But the other dimension has to do with the practical, tangible benefits, and these are the, the rights and privileges that state-recognized marriage brings. And I'm not going to list them because there's a thousand of them and we already know what they are. So when we apply these two dimensions to multiple partner relationships, I think that most progressives don't have much of a problem with the first aspect of it, which is believing that you know polyamorous relationships deserve state and society sanctioned legitimacy, dignity, recognition, respect. And let's just put aside the arguments against polygamy that concern the coercion and the exploitation of patriarchy. Since these conditions, they can apply to dyad relationships, and they're not inherent um, to the very nature of multiple partner relationships. So putting that aside, then most of the objections or the, the concerns that I've heard voiced on your show, they have to do with the second dimension that marriage brings, which is the state-conferred rights and privileges going to more than a single spouse. You know, some people brought up, like, just the pure chaos of conferring rights and benefits on a large number of spouses and the paperwork nightmare, and other people mentioned, like, the drain of financial resources if suddenly all of these spouses get economic benefits that previously had only gone to one spouse, and someone else mentioned, you know, concerns about fraud of, you know, gaming the system. But one of your callers proposed getting the state out of marriage business altogether. You know, churches want to create marriages and people want to have wedding ceremonies, fine. But leave the state involvement out of it. I totally agree with this position. I, I just wanted to add a rationale to it. 
So I'm unmarried. I always have been. I always will be. But when I go to work, I may have identical qualifications and experience as the person sitting next to me doing the same work, but that person receives more compensation than I do if that person's married in the form of employee benefits that are conferred upon the spouse. Same applies when I file my taxes, um, you know, inheritance laws, etc. So unmarried people, you know, as a class, they are discriminated against by the state. And people may say, well, yes, but unmarried people can choose to get married. That is, of course, assuming their relationships, you know, qualify for a marriage license. So it's our choice not to avail ourselves of the state-offered privilege. And so what I believe is that government, of course, has a legitimate role in setting public policy to advance governmental aims like, um, you know, that campaign to reduce smoking or get people to wear seatbelts. And once upon a time, you know, perhaps there was a legitimate government aim to encourage marriage and procreation. This must have been a long time ago. But um, can any progressive say today that we want government to be encouraging us to add to the 7 billion people on the planet by having more children or entering into marriage contracts just so that half of them will subsequently be dissolved by the state <laughs> after tying up the civil courts with divorce actions? I mean, essentially, a civil marriage, it's, it's a three-way contract. It's between the two spouses and the state. And the effect of this is to cede jurisdiction for that relationship over to the state, which then decides the rights and obligations of the parties in respect to one another. Um, and only the state can dissolve this contract, and it governs the terms and the conditions upon which it can be dissolved. And I frankly have never understood why someone would want to enter into a contract like this, because every issue that presents itself in a, in a serious long-term relationship can be addressed through existing laws without getting married, like, you know, buying real estate together, you know, power of attorney for healthcare and finance, wills and trusts, parenting agreements, I mean, on and on. So the, the problem really becomes that hiring an attorney to drop contracts for all of these issues that present um, throughout the life of a relationship would be expensive, whereas the single cost of a marriage license, which is not that much, just automatically confers upon you a de facto contract that the state then imposes for all these situations. But if we had a system where people in serious relationships could have these agreements drafted and modified at no charge, then civil marriage and this, the whole area of family law that governs dissolutions wouldn't even be necessary. And um, government funding of free clinics to do so would cost significantly less than what we spend funding courts to settle divorces. So. If we talk about all the, those benefits that come with marriage, like you know health insurance, it really never should have been attached to employment as a benefit in the first place. I mean, universal health care would take care of that issue. And um, as for all the other ways that people in civil marriages are rewarded um, by the government, if we don't like giving up the idea of offering you know state-subsidized benefits to married couples, then another option just to make it more fair would be to allow every single adult to pick just one other person to list as their legally recognized relationship. You know, you could pick your romantic partner, pick anyone you want. You could, you know, be your best friend or sibling. It doesn't have to be a sexual relationship. But the idea is that this could take the place of a civil marriage. So instead of a marriage license, you would get, you know, this legally recognized relationship status. And that would provide that pair with special rights that married couples currently have. Um, and that way, single people have a choice to receive the economic and all the other benefits that coupled people have if they want them, but yet the state isn't promoting a specific lifestyle of romantic pairing and monogamy and heterosexuality, lifetime commitments, etc., which I believe the state has no business promoting or rewarding. 
If we're not attached to the idea that married couples get all these benefits, we could simply do away with these benefits and amend the laws so that married and unmarried people are treated equally under the law with no favoritism, and that would be a just system for everyone. Plus, if we stop subsidizing marriages through all the economic advantages, it would free up a lot of revenue, which could like lower the you know the tax obligations of everyone, or we could use you know for funding you know important services, whatever. As for how this applies to the multiple partner relationships, if the goal is just to elevate these non-dyad relationships to the same status and respect that marriages currently have, that's great. But if the goal is to provide state-subsidized benefits to the many spouses, then I have a problem with that. But it's the same problem I have with one spouse receiving benefits that single people aren't entitled to. And if the goal is to allow multiple partners to have, you know, hospital visits or control over, like, you know, the disposition of remains upon death or healthcare decision-making power, you know, any of those other rights that are bestowed upon one spouse, well, existing contracts and probate laws and other areas of law already allow for those rights to be designated. So all of this is to say that civil marriage is an antiquated idea with an oppressive history, and I just really don't think that it has relevance in today's progressive vision of an egalitarian society. I'm sure that we can come up with a better way to recognize and respect significant relationships. Thanks, Jay. Love the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today I'm going to, I'm doing something totally different. Uh, I'll, I'll answer a question that you know, I, I get this question a fair amount, not an overwhelming amount, but a little bit, and that, that'll lead to something else. People ask how I come up with the songs that go in the show. You know, how do you decide what goes where? Like, do you have this music already? Do you search for it and find it? If you are searching for it, how do you find it? And the answer is all of the above. You know, I, I got a lot of songs already. And yeah, and then I search for them. Sometimes I, I search for lyrics on Google. Sometimes I just search for song names in iTunes. The answer is all of the above. But the, the reason I bring this up is because I found a band today that, and I just want to tell you about it. So I, I did, well, you know, what I just described. I was typing in a, a song title name and I came across this song and it was good, but it was a combination of like the name of the band and the name of the album and, and then how good the song sounded. I just thought like these people have more to, to tell me. So I actually clicked through to the band. I listened to samples of every song on all three of their albums they have available and downloaded like a dozen of them. So the name of the band, first of all, is the Haymarket Squares. And if you're not familiar with Haymarket Square, Google that up. And just soak in the appreciation of a band naming themselves the Haymarket Squares. The second indication that I think I was in love with these people is that the name of the album I first found of theirs is called Punk Grass for the People. And I thought, that is speaking to me on so many levels. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to do with that. And then the sound of it is very, you know, punk grass is basically the right word. It's like a combination of Mumford and Sons meets no FX. And then it, and then their, their songs, it's like a best of the left lineup. You know, each song is on a different topic. They, you know, address the theme directly and make a great song about it. You know, so don't worry, you will be hearing from them soon on the show. Uh, but you know, if you're 
interested in anything I just said uh, and think that sounds uh, up your alley, I would check out the Haymarket Squares. Uh, but that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. You're more concerned with definitions than you are with love. Are you homophobic or just plain dumb? Jealous, genocidal, God spreads hate like a crusade I can't believe that your beliefs are still alive today Why can't you just go home?